Welcome back to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here for a special anthropological uh, episode of uh, Trending in Education, where we're joined by Dr. Adam Gamwell, uh, who is host of This Anthro Life, which is uh, a really interesting podcast that I've listened to on a handful uh, of occasions, and I'd recommend it uh, to our listeners. And uh, Adam's got uh, a really wonderful cross-section of experiences that I think you can bring to bear. And in particular, we wanted to talk about robots, the future of work, anthropology, and science fiction. Uh, so uh, quite a lot to cover. And, uh, and Adam, welcome to the show. Yeah, Mike, thanks for having me. It's, it's a great honor to be here. I love training education, so it's fun to kind of have a cross-sectional episode, too, together. Absolutely. And, uh, and then speaking of uh, cross, uh, cross sections and uh, sort of diverse uh, interests, um, I wanted to begin by talking to you a little bit about yourself and what you do uh, and uh, the concept of uh, design anthropologist. Uh, design anthropology isn't necessarily something that everybody's uh, fully aware of, but um, but, uh, but I'd love you to maybe, in your own words, give us a, a quick summary of who you are and what you do professionally. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so I, I do kind of an interesting mix of things, I suppose, are interesting to me. Um, but so I, I kind of count myself, yeah, as a design anthropologist, what that means is an anthropologist is somebody that studies, you know, the remarkable complexity of, of human cultures, you know, across time and space, which sounds fantastic anyway, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, but the idea of just like studying like the change over time of how cultures and languages shift, um, and that can be, you know, as people move from one state to another, or it can be across time as like, you know, you may speak differently as a child than as an adult. And then of course, as you pass those down across generations, right? So studying trends and patterns of behavior and attitudes and, and beliefs. Um, and then the design angle comes in because uh, what, what to me is so interesting about design is it is about making sort of complex information understandable and simplified to people. Mm -hmm. And so when you put these two things together, it's like, how do we better understand ourselves as humans? you know, why we change over time, uh, you know, why we use interfaces like we do on computers, why do we read signage the way we decide, like why is a stop sign red and in a certain shape. Um, and so all sorts of things like our entire environment is designed in so many ways. And so this is, you know, this is kind of an intersection of putting these two pieces together, studying humans and change over time, as well as um, how we communicate who we are um, in that mm -hmm. sense. And then also I'm a podcaster, um, as, as you mentioned. And so to me too, that's just the other way of like, how do we communicate these, these like remarkable findings? You know, that we're just a crazy species and yeah. there's so much to think about there, you know? And so, um, so I podcast, I also am a design educator. I teach uh, design as well as in, in journalism programs in Boston. Mm -hmm. um, so kind of, so I don't know, I'm a, I'm a freelance for lifer, I guess, you know, we're yeah. <laughs> both podcasting, education, anthropology. So just across all these things. And so, yeah, yeah. We um, like to talk about uh, work. It's where it's at. Yeah. yeah, and we'd like to talk about multi-potentialites, uh, and I, I would, oh, yes. uh, mm -hmm. I would uh, include you in that category, uh, you know, someone who has a wide range of interests across multiple domains, uh, and, uh, and it, it really interesting intersections, you know, so uh, you were talking about the stop sign, and I was thinking about the intersection mm -hmm. uh, that the stop sign was. Uh, <laughs> so so yeah, right away, go. right away, you got me there. Uh, but, uh, but also design thinking is interesting, uh, yeah. and, and trying to, you know, help people think about the uh their intentions when they design things uh and trying to understand who they're being designed for and wait for it here it comes and that brings me to the topic of robots uh because uh, robots have to be designed right they and, do 
uh, and then when they're designed, uh, they're going to need to interact with humans in new and interesting ways. And I think that was what uh, got us maybe on this path to getting you on the show was that uh, we have a shared uh, love of robots and talking about how robots make us think about what it means to be human. And, uh, and then that got me uh, and us thinking about uh, how anthropology intersects with science fiction. And uh, that's a lot right there. I mean, that's gonna be a wonderful show. And that's the show, fortunately enough, that we're about to have together. So, uh, so any thoughts on that? I don't know where you wanna start. Do you wanna start with robots? Do you wanna, you know, there's plenty of range. You're an experienced podcaster. Uh, so so I'll, I'll pick up what you're putting down. Where do you wanna go next? Cool. You know, I mean, what really was interesting to me about this, this entire intersection is, is this idea that like, so if people don't really know what anthropology is, I don't, I don't want to spend too much time on it, but point out that um, anthropology is a social science, which means that we, you know, we study with and amongst humans in this case, and the, the social systems of people. Um, and we also, the science side of that, I'm putting in air quotes, you probably can't see this if you're listening to it. The science side of this is that we, of course, use evidence, right? We like do what we might call a test, you know, it's not a repeatable you know, hypothesis experiment, but we are gonna say, we think people act a certain way in this environment or, or just go out and see how do people act at this stop sign at the intersection. Um, mm -hmm. And so we collect data by talking with people, by observing them. And so then we can derive theories of why people do what they do, you know, from that. What's mm -hmm. super interesting about that with science fiction, of course, now fiction is fiction, it's made up, right? right. However, the science side of both those is really interesting because science, like sci-fi, I'm a huge sci-fi nerd, big Star Wars nerd, I'm gonna put that out there. I do yeah. have Star Trek too, but in but I'm, I'm a Doctor Who, a Whovian, I guess I guess we're called. Nice. Um, and a Star Star Warsian, I guess. <laughs> um, you know, and so that that's kind of my entree into these fields where like both of these shows and and Star Trek too, and like any your favorite thing, The Matrix, Ex Machina, you know, mm -hmm. The Terminator, mm -hmm. all of these kind of sci-fi films raise these really interesting questions about what it means to be human. And so like for me as an anthropologist, it's like what kind of patterns of behavior do we observe? Like what do these films tell us about? what we think about what it means to be human, right? right. Um, and then robots in real life give us this moment of saying, wait, okay, we're actually making this stuff now. Yes. We're making these pieces. We're, you know, we're trying to like make some of the sci-fi real. Right. Uh, and then at the same time, we're just going in ways that sci-fi doesn't go, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's really fascinating too. Like there's these, these different kinds of pieces that we can, we can uh, you know, put together here. And yeah. uh, for me, I don't know, like sci-fi always was so interesting because it's, you know, this genre of writing and, and now, you know, film and, and audio and podcast and stuff. And that um, really helps us speculate on, you know, what the future could be. You know, what might yeah. it be like if robots take over? What might it be like if this thing happens? Um, or there's other ways of thinking about, you know, if, if uh, you know, if an idea mutates, it's like if aliens came down and like, how would we deal with that? You know, and so right. I love like the, the breadth that sci-fi lets us really kind of think about what it could be, you know, what life could be like or would be like, you know, if something radically was, was different. You know? Yeah, it, you know, it's really interesting. Uh, that was wonderful, by the way. Uh, but it's really interesting to think about how, uh, for me, a lot of future thinking, because that's a big part of what we wind up doing on this show, is tied to thought experiments and allegories. And um, frequently when you're thinking about a hypothetical future, uh, that's a bit of a thought experiment. And that's the type of thing that, um, you know, philosophers, ethicists, spend a lot of time in. And it was interesting as I did research for this show to see that um, the, the whole concept of anticipatory anthropology mm. and um, 
what was the other term? Uh, it was a good one. It was in here. Uh, speculative anthro. Yeah, yeah. Speculative anthropology, anthropological science fiction is some. Is, there's an entry in Wikipedia for that. Uh, mm-hmm. And then also cyborg anthropology, uh, which yeah. uh, we're going to have to save some of that for later. But uh, but that that that's certainly interesting. So um, you know, in addition to philosophy as an area that is very interested in the future and hypothetical scenarios, um, I, I did think the allegorical nature of science fiction as it relates to engaging with the other and engaging mm-hmm. with um, with uh, different cultures. Uh, you know, whether it's aliens or robots, something that is not as inherently human as we are. Um, You know, in some ways, I think that harkens back to the earlier days of cultural anthropology, you know, Margaret Mead in, uh, you know, in the South Pacific and -hmm. other sorts of investigations like that, which also made me think about... um, uh, Star Trek, even though I know you're a Star Warsian, uh, you're fluent <laughs> yeah. in, in things Star Trek, uh, but there was the notion of the prime directive and as, yeah, that's right, yeah. and as the Enterprise went out there, uh, there was almost an ethnographic orientation towards the different uh, cultures that would be encountered. Uh, any thoughts on, uh, on this line of thinking? Yeah, totally. So, I mean, I think that's actually a great way to think about it. So, like, ethnography, of course, right, is the, is the you know, in anthropology, the, the kind of study of, of different groups of people, like, kind of the, with the intention of understanding it in their own logic, in their own words, in their own ways, mm-hmm. rather than us coming and saying, hey, this is how we see you. It's more like, how do you see yourselves? Is, is the ultimate goal, how well Star Trek or anthropologists do that is, is always, you know, up for question, which is important sure. to always kind of be critical of our own practices. But I think that that's totally right. And I, I think that idea is so interesting too. And like, even, you know, when, as you mentioned, Margaret Mead and, and Franz Boas, some of the, the yes. progenitors of anthropology in the early uh, 20th century, you know, yeah, their ideas were to go study other cultures, you know, that were not, you know, Western European or American cultures, um, partially in a way to then say, we actually do want to say that these other cultures are valuable in, in the contemporary society and that they have a place um, and again, this was fighting against a lot of racism and colonialism, saying like these people are not worthwhile because they're not the like, you know, supreme Western, you know, European or, or Americans. Yeah. And, uh, and it's so interesting too, because that is tied to this notion you said of the other, right? And the idea of like going to see who the other is in this, this uh, you, know, you know, again, in, in a like bad sense, in a racist sense, in a colonial sense, the less than human. But again, yes. that allegorical idea does totally come in in the sci-fi world, right? Aliens right. are the ultimate other, right? They're the not human. Right. Uh, I mean, the fact that we have the term alien for, for migrants across the planet tells you something very interesting, right? Right, right. Um, anthropologically and also kind of sci-fi e too. It's like as if they like, you know, beam down on a mothership yes. <laughs> to a different part of the planet, you know? Right. It's weird. Um, but sci-fi is so interesting because of that. It's like it deals with that otherness, right? And so right. like that's such a, a good doorway to to ask ourselves like, so why are we obsessed with the other? Like we we, we are like we are fascinated by that which we don't totally understand. And we're both horrified and really drawn to it. You know? That's why yeah. robots are so interesting, you know, because it's like Robots are not humans, you know, we're trying to make them human, which we, we can talk about, and like anthropomorphizing yeah. them, making them look like people. Yeah. Um, but we're like totally drawn into this otherness, right? Right, right, for sure. And, uh, and then that got me to this, this notion of uh, anticipatory or speculative yeah. uh, anthropology and the idea that, um, there, as I looked a little bit, there are folks who, anthropologists who have said, 
one of the problems in the field is that it winds up being too backwards facing. So like mm. look at the, the historical precedents that lead to what currently uh, exists and for that to be the entirety of the, the spheres with, which in, within which uh, anthropologists operate is somewhat limiting and it's not necessarily uh, trying to anticipate or speculate on where we're heading as humans. I'd love to get your perspective on that, even in, in your own practice. Um, you know, in some ways, maybe the design thinking is helping you uh, be at least a little more anticipatory uh, mm. in that, like when you're putting something out in the world, you're expecting it to be engaged with um, yeah. in, a, in a more practical way. But, uh, but any thoughts on like the more speculative or like how do you look say five to 10 years out in the future as an anthropologist and, uh, and how does that come to bear on anything uh, we might be interested on this show? Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's funny because like anthropology has a, has a PR problem, right? That we like, you, you hear it like, oh yeah, you study ancient peoples and it's like, yes. well, some of us do. Sure. Right, right. Um, so it's like that, it's not incorrect, but you're right. It's like, we're not really known for being forward thinking or, or like, or like, um, and part of it too is again, cause like as a, as one level of science, you know, um, and the way that anthropologists are trained is to like, you know, again, through observation, through interviews, through living with people, mm -hmm. um, you gather evidence about what patterns of behavior people do and like, you know, why, why not get a sense of why they do what they do in, in people's own cultural logic. And so then it, it's what we might call diagnostic, right? It's like understanding or diagnosing a current situation, right? Mm -hmm. But then you're totally right. There's this anticipatory movement or like, how do we predict what might happen next? Yeah. And anthropology is totally in a great spot to do that, you know, and I think, right. and that's also again for me, like as a design anthropologist, as a design thinker, this is one great way of doing that because one of the main differences is like traditional anthropology would go out and study a, a different group of people in a different culture or even in, in their own culture. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, come back and write a book about it, writes, you know, kind of make information available to a different group about this, this other group. Yes. Now, what design does also is it actually works to actively intervene in a current situation, right, to help mm -hmm. improve the future. Right. And so on one level, it is inherently predictive. It's also interventionist, I think, is an, is an important piece too, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's like, do we, you know, how do we sort of ethically find a way to intervene in, in people's uh, lives? And part of that, I think the anthropology part is important because what it does is let us understand alongside with you. Let us talk with you. Let us get to know your you know, what you're, what you're going through, and then we can help diagnose an issue together to then solve for something for the future, right? right and so right. part of being anticipatory is like, there's an anthropologist named Tim Ingle uh, that talks about having foresight, what he calls. And the idea with this is to be anticipatory is to kind of go out and run ahead of events and pull them along the timeline to where you mm. want them to go, which I think mm. is a really beautiful like, kind of allegory, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and so it's just kind of like being attentive to what, what are people's goals. Instead of just saying where you come from, it's kind of saying, well, where do you want to go? You right. Know, what do you see happening in five to 10 years? And like the more time you spend with people, uh, you know, you can ask more questions about their anticipations of what they're looking for. And you can see, I mean, you know, contemporary, we're in 2019 United States, there's a lot of anxiety over, over political challenges right now. There's global challenges happening in multiple countries. There's issues of climate. You know, it's not, it's not hard to see how people are thinking about the future in these very broad strokes. And so then grab some of those and then kind of run ahead with people and say, where do you think we're going with those? Yeah. Um, you know, in design sense, then it's like, how do we then pull that to a practical level of saying, okay, well, what steps can we take to right. help make some change possible, right? Right, right. And uh, to that end, let's talk robots, right? So yeah. If, <laughs> yeah. if we're looking ahead, let's say the next five to 10 years, um, I think very, pretty much anyone who's doing that is thinking about automation, is thinking mm -hmm. about uh, 
skills uh, and domains that are going to be disrupted by uh, what's been called uh, the fourth uh, the fourth industrial revolution or the fourth wave industrial revolution, mm-hmm. uh, which is uh, really fully leveraging some of the emerging capabilities around uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning, and um, and robots. And um, I'd love to get your perspective on uh, that as a as an anthropologist, as a design anthropologist, and someone who thinks about the future. Uh, I also think it's it's an interesting time to think about how much of this is um, is really allegorical, is more like a secular myth, uh, which is something we were talking about coming in. Mm. You know, we're less. Um, particularly, uh, you know, post uh, enlightenment, uh, you know, scientific revolution, uh, you know, in some ways, the gods are less part of our uh, secular narrative. But there are still places where we want to sort of grapple with what might be superhuman, or sort of beyond our current um, conceptions of, of what's possible. And I think that's frequently where we sort of we use these constructs like robots and aliens to sort of uh, both identify the other, but identify something that might be godlike or beyond us, which, which also starts to get us into the cyborg side. So, yeah. uh, so thoughts on this? Yeah, that's good. Actually, no, cyborg is actually a really good way to start thinking about this. So like the idea of cyborg anthropology and cyborgs themselves, right, is, is actually a cyborg is a being that has both organic and non-organic components. Mm-hmm. And so the, the, it's like cyborg anthropology almost is kind of a joke, if you think about it, because it means I have a cell phone. It's kind of like, that's a way of thinking about, you know, there's actually Amber Case that does a really wonderful uh, uh, TED talk about uh, cyborg anthropology. And then she kind of points out saying, I want to show you a picture of a cyborg just, just to get this warmed up. And she turns the slide on and there's a picture of a baby holding a cell phone, yeah. you know? <laughs> and it's like this, this funny idea that like, oh, that, that's, when it comes down to it, that's what really what we're talking about. Like the mm-hmm. idea of, how do we sort of interface with, with non-organic components and mm-hmm. certainly with electronic ones like this? And so on, on one level, like all of us are cyborgs now, right? We have all become cyborgized, whatever, sure. whatever that verb is, yeah. you know, um, we are cyborgian, you know, and it's just this idea, like Donna Harway's an anthropologist talks about this, of us being messmates. And like the idea is like, we're just like this messy middle where it's like, we, we interact with these, these organic and non-organic devices uh, all the time. Mm-hmm. And that we live our lives, we make our meaning using them, right? We have Twitter right. and we have our cell phones and we're talking on a podcast right now across right. time and space, right? you know? And so given that, like, on one level, like, we are super used to, like, working with this kind of level of technology, right? So on one, one level, like, we can't actually not be cyborgs, right? Like, we have to relearn how to be humans without right. having this technology. Right. Uh, and so it's interesting is that robots add this extra layer of anxiety and excitement, right? And I think godlike powers is, is an interesting way of thinking about that. Like the number one easy way to think about a god power is you don't have to sleep, right? right. We, we tend to think about God as like, you know, certainly in, in the United States and in Western Europe and stuff that God in, is like the, the dominant religion is monotheism. Maybe atheism mm-hmm. is taking over, but you right. know, by and large is that there's like one single like mega God, right. <laughs> you know? Right. Um, but if you go to Dragon Ball Z or you go to any other places like, um, there's like a pantheon, like even the, the, the ancient Greek gods. And this is what the historian Yuval Noah Harari talks about in Homo Deus. Yes. Um, and also he wrote the book Sapiens, which, you know, is a really cool, like, trilogy of books about where humans came from, where we're going, and, and where we might be today. Yeah. And in this, in this book, he talks about, like, the human quest for immortality and for happiness and, and for just making ourselves have godlike powers. 
But what really struck me about this when he's setting this up is that it isn't that we want to become this omnipotent, you know, monotheistic God. It's that we're actually taking on powers like what we might see with the, the South Asian or Hindu gods or Greek gods that we can travel really fast or we can see really far away or we like yeah. have something like third sight, you know. So it's not this everything, but it's like we're getting these like upgrades, you know. Right. And that right. you play any video game, it's like an RPG, right? You can like level up your XP. Yes. You can add things to your, your stuff, you know. Right. Um, it's kind of like that. So it's, it's an interesting amalgamation where it's not just this like block of like we become God, right? But it's like this really interesting mix. Like, again, and that's a cyborg is like, you can get a better cell phone. Oh, I leveled up. You know, my computer's fast. Yeah, right. I leveled up, you know. Right. Right. Um, really interesting mix. Yeah. Well, and uh, and the one we've talked about, particularly as it relates to cyborgs, is uh, brain computer interfaces. Mm. Yeah. which which is an like it's also science fiction is super interesting in terms of the narrative elements and the myth making where like i do think that is and uh i think we both have read uh, a lot of yuval harari so apologies for those of you who haven't uh but it's really accessible i would encourage you to check out uh particularly uh sapiens and homo deus is a nice yeah. view of the history of our species and then homo deus is a little more speculative about where we may be heading but um but it's really interesting to think about the myth-making and the narrative aspect of all of this and myths and the stories that cultures tell their, uh, their members is a big part of anthropology and thinking about how um, the stories we tell and the stories we're told about robots are frequently um, tied to um, media experiences and yeah. uh you know we 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 talked about westworld a bunch when it was out there yeah um partly because i think it captures our imagination just in general like the narrative itself and then partly because exploring those possible futures that may not be too far off frequently can help us understand how do we want to get to those next phases so like you're i, I like the way you were talking about um uh, being somewhat interventionist, uh, you know, flouting the prime directive uh, to say, based on the possible future that I see in the that I see on the horizon, I need to introduce things that might steer us in a in a in a different way. Um, I'd love to to get your take on um, those concepts, and then maybe uh, touch a bit on the uncanny valley too, because like that was another thing that. Uh, we've both covered a few times on uh, our independent shows mm. and uh, I'm trying to figure out as we talk about the intersection, uh, you know, there's a stop sign there, but there's also some discussion of the uncanny Valley. So uh, <laughs> just past the stop sign. Yeah. Just past the stop <laughs> sign is the exactly stop. The RB dragons, the RB cyborgs. <laughs> and, cyborgs uh, yeah. and, and, you, and you may want to, you may be able to pause before proceeding. Um, mm. uh, but do you, could, could you maybe spend a, a, a few moments talking about what the Uncanny Valley is uh, as you understand it and how it might relate to these narratives and, uh, and how we think about um, what it means to be human? Yeah, definitely. Because um, the Uncanny Valley is really interesting, right? It's this, it's this it's if we like visualize a, you know, a, a curve, like kind of like a pyramid for looking at like a line graph and, you know, it kind of starts bottom in like on, on the very left side of this graph is like things that don't seem very human in this case right and then the uncanny valley is when you kind of go up and up and up and like robots look more and more and more human until you reach this point where it's not cool anymore because they look so much like you it just feels like in uncanny it's like this is uncomfortable because i can't distinguish myself 
or like what the human is from the robot. Mm -hmm. uh, and then it kind of dips into super creepy. And so like, this is where it's like, we might talk about um, if you've seen Doctor Who, it's not, it's okay, but there's like a Dalek or, or it looks like, it looks like a small tank on wheels. Like it looks yeah. nothing like a human. It looks right. like a stupid, like gumball with wheels, <laughs> you know, um, that is not anywhere near the uncanny. Like that's on like the far, far side of like, looks like a robot, you know, and that's right. safely in robot territory. And, right. you know, a lot of old school robots that we conceptualize these big metal things, you know, are on that yeah. side, you know, but as we get closer, we move into C-3PO and then you talked about Data before too from Star Trek, who's, who's mm -hmm. actually just an actor, right? you know, painted with slightly gold skin. Yeah. Um, up until like you might see, uh, if you saw Ex Machina that came out yes. a few years ago. Yes. Um, with Alicia Vanderkenner was, was this robot that was just, she's a human, you know, but happens to also be a robot, you know, you can just tell because she doesn't have half of a head, you know, yeah. the other half is like clear. Yeah. Um, you know, and so it's like getting to the space where you can't tell the difference between, you know, a human and a robot. Uh, and, and, you know, part of this is interesting too, because this has to do with what's called the Turing test, which is like, can yep. a, a computer trick you into thinking it's a person? So there's these two pieces, does it look like a human? Mm -hmm. And then also can it trick you into thinking it's a human? Mm -hmm. um, which both are kind of scary, you know, yeah. ideas. Yeah. Um, and that's where things like the human computer interface, like are way past the uncanny valley, because you can't even see the interface. It just is in you, yes. you know, and then yeah. am, am I me? Am I the interface? I don't know. Right. Um, so it goes from like, you know, tank robot all the way to you are the computer. Right. Uh, and then so and that's it's a really interesting because it gets it blends really quickly once you get over that the hump of the valley when you're in there. Yeah. Yeah. You know, am I the robot? Yeah. Oh, my God. Well, I don't know. I, <laughs> that's that's a good question. If you are, you're passing the, the Turing <laughs> test right now. And uh, right. somebody somebody did some significant uh, programming uh, on, on the other end. So uh, so hats off to them or or or, or not. But um. But, but I think all of that is, is, is hugely interesting to me in terms of how that coincides with the crisis of trust mm, yeah. that we're all facing nowadays where um, we're not clear what, what is true and we're not clear on, uh, you know, who am I actually engaging with at this point in time? And there's all this blurring of engaging with humans and engaging with smart agents who are human-like. Mm -hmm. um, I always think about chat bots in yeah. that context where, uh, and then frequently the chat bot handles the, the, the initial interaction. And then if they need to bubble that up to, to sort of a human because of an escalation of some kind, uh, increasingly, I think the design thinking is creating a system where the machines do the things that machines do best to preserve some space for the humans to do what humans do best. And interestingly, I think the human, particularly when humans engage with other humans, uh, building trust, empathy, and uh, a sense of a shared, shared experience or shared meaning mm. are the places that, um, you know, the Turing test would argue that the robots will have trouble crossing that divide like that's the yeah. valley, it, it, the valley beyond uh, for those of us who are Westworld fans. Um, mm. But um, but I think that is that that's very much, I think, uh, again, like an allegory uh, for one of the most like sort of fundamental um, uh, like existential crises that I think we're facing right now. And that all uh, circles back to the concept of the singularity. Uh, which which mm. Ray Kurzweil put out there, like the the futurist is still around, but I believe, but uh, was was yeah was putting out some of these ideas. I think singular, he even has Singularity University. I think he found it, 
but um but he was talking about how humans and machines would be combined in what was then the distant future what is now in the next say five to ten years that this idea that there is something distinctly human that is independent from the mm. cell phone the baby's holding that you were describing before <laughs> uh, that that blending is likely to happen and it's happening already and it's also happening at a time when we're not necessarily trusting technology Mm -hmm. I think I think it's hugely interesting. So uh, I'd love to get. And by the way, we could go on. Clearly, we could go on at length about this. Uh, this, <laughs> yeah. this is this is it's been wonderful having you on. But uh, but yeah, I'd love to get your uh, your perspective on that. And then um, we'll probably try to wrap with any thoughts on how this might relate to learning, education writ large, or mm. or teaching, because that is uh, you know uh, what the thrust of this show is about. Um, but any thoughts on that? Like just the, the crisis of trust and, um, you know, the level to which we're, um, you know, we're, we're sort of approaching this singularity moment when the sort of blends between humans and AI are going to become more standard. And, uh, and then I think that does relate in part to the Turing test too. Like, you know, mm -hmm. um, the Turing test, I think, in some ways was saying, uh, Turing was speculating that it'd be difficult to create these sort of blends, but that was back in the 1950s. You know, mm -hmm. we're, yeah. we're almost 70 years beyond when he was speculating about this stuff. Um, you know, it seems like when it comes to chat, from what I've read, like people are, like designers are already passing the Turing test. So yeah. um, any thoughts on that? Well, that's, I mean, I think that that's a great, that chatbots are a really interesting question. And I think to, about, about the idea of trust with, with AI and, and robots, because they're an example of people using text to deceive. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, like, like a, a chatbot helping you on a, on a website is not deceiving you, but a chatbot in a text bot used on Twitter to sow false information is used to deceive. And so yes. I think part of the reason that we have this like challenge of trust is because people are use people, not robots, are using the technology to do different things, right? Some is like, let me help you, like, instead of looking at an FAQ list, just talk to the robot. Right. Or let me put a bunch of bullshit, sorry, put a bunch of bad stuff on on Twitter that's gonna, you know, incite, you know, political anger. Yeah. And so given that, like. Uh, the trust, it's interesting, the trust, we tend not to trust the technology, but it's actually the people behind it, mm. um, which as an anthropologist, again, like it's this, again, who's doing it is one of the questions. So there always is a question of power. I have to just put a plug in there for power. Yeah. <laughs> that, um, but literally you have to plug in the power, but also just like there's power <laughs> dynamics of who's controlling the information, right? Yeah. Um, and so as we get to the singularity, like I think part of the fear, same with like automation and loss of jobs, um, to jump over to that for a second, is yeah. that again, that's not being done because it's necessarily good for people. It's being done because it's good for a business, right? Right. And while it does help turn out, we'll say more cars or it can help, I don't, I don't know, I mean, doing an AI color palette can help you pick the color palette for your website faster than a human could potentially, you know? Right. Uh, there are these things that it can do like quicker. Uh, but again, what is that good for? You know, is, right. It, right. is it really on one level necessary to make color palettes faster? Maybe, maybe right. not. Right, right. Is it to make cars faster? Maybe, maybe not. So. Uh, the crisis of trust is it's interesting because like it gets placed on robots sometimes and it, it certainly can be because why would you trust a, an algorithm right. that we also literally can't ever see and the people that made it also can't see them. 
but different topic for a different episode. Right, that's, this is this the, um, the, the vague paranoia or specific paranoia phase yeah, of the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah, exactly, right. Um, but then the other side of it too is that like, you know, who's, who's making these decisions and why? And that's why like, you know, Byron Reese just came out with a book called The Fourth Age that is about this idea of the, the fourth industrial revolution, mm-hmm. um, you know, moving this turn into, in that we're going to more automation and stuff. And again, it is advancing industry, but it's, you know, it is causing an existential crisis for a lot of people um, to the extent that, you know, all of us have to rethink what education means, right? Do I need to keep going back to school? Right. You know, do I need to keep learning new things? And the, the answer so far I'm seeing is, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, like l- lifelong learning is now used to be a cool thing. And now it's like a requirement, um, right. which is both cool, but also just like, um, but again, what, what is the education for? And again, like it's kind of shifts to this idea of like, if I am an auto factory worker that gets booted out because robots took over my job, then I'm going to do a vocational training program. I'm probably not going to get a degree in philosophy. Maybe. Right. Right. So I think one of the things that we definitely want to be thinking about for education going forward is, uh, you know, A, I obviously want to advocate for having space for humanities and social sciences on top of working with STEM and science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Um, But then like, you know, not reduce education to vocation only. However, I think it's also important to like help traditional like uh, universities that do STEM and humanities to also have vocational training. So it's like, we really could learn to rethink all these pieces together as we move into more automation, as we want to robot proof ourselves, mm-hmm. um, because things like humanities and, and social sciences, anthropology, sociology do kind of, as you said, point out some of the key things that humans do that robots don't do, right? Right. right. That we relate to each other really well. We make meaning well together. We make really cool narratives. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we know how to bond and, and, you know, yeah, you can be friends with the robot too, but um, there's certain things that, that at least for now, right, are uniquely human and those ought to be both celebrated and uh, in the age of automation, not diminished, I guess. Right? And that, that I, I think that is actually part of the work of education today, right? Mm-hmm. That's something we can design into our curriculum. It's like we have to find ways to both celebrate and teach, I guess, as weird as it sounds, like what it means to be human, yeah. right? And like, and that it's okay. And that it's also valuable to society. Right. It's not just, you know, can I go be a UX designer and make a hundred grand? Or can I go be a podcaster and, you know, become a gajillionaire like we all are? Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, it's just more like we, we actually need to like on one level come back to the basics. Of like this is this is what it means to be a good human. Right. You know, like the prime directive, right? <laughs> do no harm. Yeah. And do well and like study and understand other people on their own terms. You know, yeah. it's like maybe Star Trek was right. Yeah. And uh, and uh, Immanuel Kant and uh, the Buddha and uh, and other yeah, Jesus, yeah. Jesus was onto some things, too. You know what I mean? Like they have, ideas, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, all that stuff. But, uh, but yeah, it's really interesting. And maybe just to sort of conclude, like you were, you were talking a bit about, um, I think you were saying like future proofing, um, your mm. sort of, your thinking about your, your own career prospects, uh, and then also how we think about education. Um, I'd love to, to get your perspective on that as, as we look at uh, domains that are getting disrupted by uh, automation and by robots and by many of the things we talked about on the show today. Um, how do you think about the things that it makes sense to invest in, uh, even in terms of your own lifelong learning? Um, you know, you know, just to to use you as an example, you know, like you're uh, you're uh, a trained anthropologist. Uh, you know, you're you teach teach at universities, but you've also um, ramped up on the creative side, and uh, and you know, you, you operate a production studio among other things. I'd love to, to maybe uh, end maybe on a little bit more of a personal note in terms of how you think about 
the future and how you think about, at least on a personal level, what, the, how you'll stay future-proof and, uh, and relevant, but, but maybe trying to ex extrapolate that to any, any lessons or recommendations you might want to provide to our listeners around, um, you know, how to really lean into the lifelong learning side of uh, maybe the next five to 10 years. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, it's, it's funny that this, like, this is an adage that I have heard from creatives uh, in that it's, you know, if you're looking at, for example, like what do, if you're looking for a job in user experience design uh, and, and you look at like a bunch of, um, you know, descriptions of jobs and what they're looking for, it's really funny because all of them say, we want someone that's curious. Mm -hmm. And that is a very simple idea. But however, that's it, it. It occurred to me again, like I guess both as an anthropologist and someone that's read a bunch of um, job apps over the over the years, is that well, the, if they're saying that, that means they're not seeing it, and they also realize there's a value in that. And so I guess part of my thing is then to say yes. Like I think for myself too, it's like like I think that was like a subtle way of me realizing that being curious is okay and mm -hmm. important, right? Mm -hmm. And that like being interested in a lot of things is helpful. Like not that one has to be in order to be successful, but you know, if you're interested in something, if you're interested in music or interior design or uh, I don't know, stop sign design, yeah. you know, or ice cream flavors, whatever it is, it doesn't really matter. It's like, it is, is like not being afraid to kind of follow your nose a little bit and say, I want to go a little bit down this rabbit hole and see what it is. Right. And mm -hmm. um, you know, and oftentimes when you meet some level of resistance is usually when you can then understand, do I want to pursue or not, you know, and oftentimes it's worth dealing with some of that resistance. Right. Yeah. Um, I was told when I first started podcasting that it wasn't really worth my time. And I don't, I guess the verdict is still out, but <laughs> six years later, I love doing it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you know, here we are. So, uh, you know, it's, it's like, I think part of it too is like, is like, yeah, I mean, follow your nose. If something's that, that's kind of what I've been doing. And that's where it's like, and I, I began anthropology and then I started doing podcasting as, as a way to, uh, for me, bring anthropological thinking to different audiences. And also I, I'm a really slow reader and being a student is very frustrating. You have to read all the time. How right. do I get information easier to myself? Why don't I listen to it? Right, right. You know, and, um, and so, I mean, part of it was, again, like I saw one of my own problems. How do I help solve that, right? How do I help improve my future condition by doing something about it? And that was, I guess I designed thought in my own podcast back in the day. I didn't, I didn't realize that. Wow. Nice. It's like therapy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, and as I guess, I guess part of that, and then just like, what's interesting today is, is, you know, as I kind of joked before, when he started, I'm a freelancer for life. Um, and part of it, I think is like, what's incredible about today is that you can make a living doing most anything. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. you know, I mean, you have to put hard work into it, but like, because we have the internet, because we have access to so much technology and communication technology and logistics, like if you need to get something shipped to you, you can do that. Yeah. Um, you have access to MOOCs, online education, right? Right. Um, like you can, you can kind of pursue most anything, you know, this is of course in the, the utopian world in which we don't have cultural constraints and parents saying get a real job. Right. But, um, you know, I don't know. So there's a mix of these two things, I guess, but like part of it, I guess I stuck with it long enough that right. my parents stopped asking what I was going to do with my life because it started looking like I was doing something, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, you know, yeah, so I guess uh, it's a mix of those things, I guess. But like, yeah. I think for me, it's just, it's like, just stay curious, you know, and like, and like, it is, it's worth the fight to keep trying, like, follow what you, what you care about. Right. And I don't mean that in some, you know, some hippy dippy sense, but just like, you can actually make a living doing it. If you, if you actually, you know, take the time to figure out what the industry looks like, what the space looks like, what people are, what people, what problems do they face, right? Be yeah. the anthropologist, you know, right, right. a little bit. Yeah, no, for sure. It made me, uh, 
maybe think uh, I, I'm, the jury's out on whether I like the terms, but I like the idea of the distinction between the gig economy and the passion economy, mm. which I've seen a little more lately, which is like interesting. Yeah. Pursue spaces where you can derive meaning and value in your life and then sort of find the way to sort of uh, generate income out of that. Um, I think it's an interesting macro lesson. Uh, I think it, it can become challenging. Like you're not necessarily, you know, rather than pursuing the uh, extrinsic rewards, uh, which generally, as we know from podcasting, might include, uh, you know, income. Uh, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, and then, and then to your point, like I think frequently you can find, if, I guess if you, if you sort of pursue more like where you find passion and meaning in your lives and then uh, you're ready to be flexible and entrepreneurial, in that um, sort of endeavor, um, there, there are plenty of ways to stay relevant. I think increasingly they're gonna involve making things and they're gonna involve yeah. being uh, creative. And, uh, and I, maybe just the last uh, piece uh, to, to, to bring you in on too is like, um, can you talk a little bit about the production studio side of what you do? Because I think that that is interesting. Not every anthropologist is also uh, doing the, the production uh, stuff that you do so i'd love to maybe close with that just to kind of open up how people think about uh the quote-unquote passion economy yeah that, that's a great that's a great question so uh, yes yeah, so i run i run a production company called missing link studios uh here in boston and actually my business partner lives in texas so we're, we're a distributed team um but again uh, she and i are both passionate about making things right and and, and so part of it and she's also a trained anthropologist but she's worked in data science for years and i'm and you know also train anthropologists, but work on the design side. And so we kind of found a, a space in the middle where mm -hmm. data and design come together. And that mm -hmm. is the magic word of storytelling. And, yeah. you know, again, speaking of things that humans do well, it's, it's one of the things that we have fundamentally always done, right? We talked about myths and narratives across robots and education and, and you know, the future. And like, that's what we do. We tell stories as people, right, you know? Right. And so Missing Link Studios is just this space in which we can both do things like visual design or, or data design but also help people tell stories. You know, we do podcast production mm -hmm. as well. And so it's, it's part of it is just like, what does it mean to give people the space for unfettered creativity, right? And how do we help you? I want to tell the story either visually or I don't know what I want to do. I, I have this thing I want to tell. I, I either want to get my brand up to date or I just want to make this podcast about X, Y, Z. Right. You know, part of it is like, how do we design think that problem? Opening up the creative palette of like audio and visual and mm -hmm. data. Mm -hmm. And we have so many, like we have, our palette is, is full, right? Of these different kinds of mediums we could use. And so, I mean, that's, that's what Missing Link is about. And so, um, you know, and we're just getting off the ground. So, you know, part of it, this is like, if people have any, any questions or want to learn more about that, we'd love to hang out and talk with you. Yeah. Um, but that, that's really, that's just the dream. It's like, again, making is what it's about. I think, I think you're absolutely right. Like we're, we're at the point now where, since we have so many tools, like you and I, we, we can podcast and like, you know, we're using distributed tools to do this also. And so it's yeah. like, that people have access to these, like it means we can, we should make, right? And, and people love making stuff, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, let's just, let's put some guardrails in the bowling alley to make, make it sound good and look good. Yeah. Um, that's what our training is for. And then, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that, that's, that's, that's the dream, I guess. Awesome. Uh, Dr. Adam Gamwell, thanks, uh, thanks for joining us. We made something. We made a, we made a podcast. We did. We, did. <laughs> we had a yeah. podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, so thanks again to, uh, to Adam. If you, Want to track him down? It's This Anthro Life, uh, thisanthrolife.com. Uh, also, Missing Link Studios, you can find a link to it from This Anthro Life. And uh, yeah. I think you can also track Adam on Twitter, find him through whatever 
uh, ways in which you track people and, uh, and uh, look forward to staying in touch. Uh, it's a fun conversation. Thanks for joining. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is great. Awesome. And to our listeners, uh, thanks again for listening. And uh, we'll be back again soon. <laughs>